welcome to Baby Grow Big Club. If we haven't met before, I am Catherine Muldoon and I am your online coordinator for Baby Grow. Tonight, I'm so, so excited to kick off with a really special event with an amazing author um, of our selected book this month, which is Why Infant Reflux Matters. And that is Carol Smith. So thank you so, so much, Carol, for joining us. Hi, yeah, I'm, I'm Carol Smith. I'm a lactation consultant. Uh, I work in private practice in Northern Ireland, and I'm also a CBT practitioner. And yeah, I'm the author of Why Infant Reflux Matters. Amazing. Uh, well, I suppose the question that probably all authors get asked first off is, why did you decide to write this book? Yeah, so, well, I suppose my interest with reflux really started whenever I had my first baby. I wasn't working on breastfeeding support then. I didn't really know anything about it. I just had my first baby. And, um, you know, he, he was actually a very settled baby when he was in my arms. But he was really very unsettled when he was out of my arms. And I just did not understand what was happening with him. And uh, I remember when he was three weeks old, going to a breastfeeding support group. And, he, and I took him in his car seat and he slept. And I was there for about an hour and a half and he slept. I had that had never happened before. You know, he, he didn't really sleep for any length of time if he wasn't in my arms. And I kept mentioning it. I can't believe he's still asleep. I can't believe he hasn't woken. And one of the health visitors that was there said, oh, well, if he's sleeping in the car seat and he doesn't really sleep elsewhere, maybe he has a wee bit of reflux. And that was the first time I'd really heard the term. So I went home and I Googled, as you do, as you do. And when I Googled, I found this whole list of things which I could fit to what he was doing. So he wanted to be in my arms all the time. He was feeding more frequently than I thought he should. He didn't want to be laid down on his back. So then I started to think, oh gosh, maybe they're right. Maybe there's something wrong. Maybe he has reflux. And then at six weeks old, I was at my GP visit and so the GP was asking me to get him out of his clothes and whenever I laid him down, he would cry. When I picked him up, he settled. Happened a couple of times and the GP said, I see that every time you put him down, he cries. Maybe he has a touch of reflux. And that to me was a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. So very shortly after that, he was on medication. He was on Gaviscon and then he was on Omeprazole. But I didn't feel good about it. I did not want to give him this stuff. It did not feel right. Um, and so I went and I, I searched out for some good breastfeeding support. I got some breastfeeding support. I learned a bit about what brain development was, a bit about baby behavior. And I realized he didn't have reflux or, or he did, but not in a problematic way. He didn't have gourd. He did not need to be medicated. Um, so I was able to take him off it. And we fed for a long time and it was really good. And I wanted to get involved with helping other people to breastfeed as well. And so I started going through, you know, I became a peer supporter. I became a lecture league leader. I went on and did my um, lactation consultant exams. But I just saw the same pattern over and over and over again in other mums. They're being really worried about their babies, being diagnosed or being labeled as having reflux without any kind of real investigation being done, being put onto medications. And in lots and lots of these cases, the vast majority of these cases, I could see there were other issues that were going on. There were feeding issues, there were other things. So that's really what drove 
the book. It was just, it was working with so, so many parents and just seeing the same cycles over and over. And I thought, how do I get this message out to more people? And that's, that's what brought the book about. Amazing. Just feeling that there's something needed to be do done and yeah. going ahead and doing it. That's yeah. so empowering to see that somebody's going out and doing something like that. That's amazing. You, something that really hit me there when you were talking, you were saying about diagnosis versus labeling. And when we go to a doctor, when, so, when the doctor tells us something, we feel like it's a diagnosis. What's the difference in labeling or diagnosing gourd or reflux for you? Well, diagnosis can only be done by a specialist. You know, it's a bit like, you know, so yes, my other, my other work is in CBT. So you might go to a, a GP and the GP might say to you that, you know, you have depression. But that's not really, that's not actually a diagnosis. That diagnosis can only happen by a psychiatrist. They can say you have, they can say you meet criteria. They say, you, they can say you have symptoms. Um, and it's very much the same for other issues. They, you know, they might be able to tell someone with a heart problem that they think that they're having some kind of cardiac problems, but you need to see that cardiac consultant for them to actually diagnose an issue. So the same thing is, is with reflux. What's happening to, to parents whenever they go is that they're mentioning symptoms and because of those symptoms, it's suggested that, well, there maybe there's reflux here. Let's do a trial of some medication. But that's not the same as a diagnosis. And to get a diagnosis of GORD, you'd have to see, a, you know, a, a pediatric gastroenterologist. And, you know, there would have to be investigations done. But those investigations are, you know, they're invasive. If you're going to actually look and see whether there's any inflammation in the esophagus, those are pretty, pretty invasive tests. So we don't do them you know they're not done unless there are severe problems going on that would justify them so whenever people whenever babies are labeled and they are put on to medications it's as a trial it's it's just to see let's see whether this helps i wonder like how many other issues do we trial medication yeah. on for the like we, there's very few adults um issues that would ever be trialed on something directly from what can often be a 10 minute meeting with your doctor when it comes to these things? Well, I think, I mean, I think those proton pump inhibitors are very often trialed in adults as well. You know, it's, yeah, let, let's see, let's see whether, you know, reducing an acid would help. So I think actually it is a relatively common thing for drugs just, you know, to be trialed. Okay, it might be this, this might be what's going on. Yeah. Let's, let's test it out and see. I suppose what the difference of that may be that a, an adult can turn around and say, yeah, actually this is working for me. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what, what are some of the symptoms signals that the, these medications aren't maybe working for a baby or that they are working and supporting them? And what would the next steps be if it is actually working or isn't working? Yeah, so it, de it depends. I suppose the, the, what the first kind of treatment is supposed to be is Gaviscon. So Gaviscon is, you know, it's there and it's supposed to create a bit of a raft on top of the stomach contents to stop them coming up. That's, that's the idea behind it. Um, some people find that that does seem to make a difference for them. Others find that it makes no difference whatsoever. Some find that babies actually vomit a little bit more and it's like a jelly type of stuff then that comes up because they, they put that in there. Um, the big side effect, I suppose, with Gaviscon is constipation. Lots and lots of babies will get constipated from it. The problem with that is that if a baby is constipated, they're going to strain more in order to try and get that poo out and if you strain if you're putting all of that you know abdominal pressure that actually makes the reflux more likely 
Mm -hmm. Babies are more likely to vomit if they're straining. So the problem with, with these things is once you get onto you get onto a medication, you're you're almost on a conveyor belt where you do that, the baby gets constipated, okay, that's not working. So let's try the next thing, or the baby's vomiting more, let's try the next thing. And the next thing is usually going on to an acid suppressant. So it's usually a proton pump inhibitor, and that would be something like omeprazole, lansoprazole, azomeprazole. Um, and again, lots of people find it just doesn't really make any difference. Now they're put on a trial of it for a few weeks to see, and then if they go back and they say, well, it hasn't really helped all that much. Usually the first thing that happens is that the baby is weighed and they've gained more weight. So, well, let's increase the dosage then and see whether it makes any difference. Um, yeah, so that's that's what happens for lots of people. And that the research would say that it doesn't, it, it's very, very effective at reducing stomach acid. There's no doubt about that. Those drugs are excellent at doing that job. But the research would also suggest that it doesn't reduce fussiness or crying. So that to me would really raise the question of whether is that fussiness and crying, has it got anything to do with stomach acid? In that's that case. A, and that's such a difficult thing to, do, or to try and figure out even as a parent. Yeah. especially in those early days what a cry means anyway and you start to get a sometimes you get a feeling for it but if there's not something there if, there, if you're doing everything that you think you can possibly do how, do how do you work through on that that's it's such a such a difficult process to work through absolutely and you just want to do something that's going to make your baby more comfortable that I mean that's so much what parenting is it's it's do, answering our children's needs yeah it's just so much of what we're looking for I, I remember listening to you talking with the wonderful Claire Hackett um, about your book and about reflux and you were talking about what effect these antiacids can have on digestion and things like that there can you tell us a little bit more about that yeah so and this is something that kind of worries me a little bit because I don't think parents are informed about this stuff these are powerful drugs. They're, you know, they're not just benign. They're, they are very good at what they do, but stomach acid is there for a reason. Um, you know, stomach acid is needed there as part of digestion. So it's, it's needed to break down proteins. You know, proteins are, they're kind of all bundled up, you know, and what, what the stomach acid does is start to unwind them into like a like kind of a much more longer line so that it can then start digesting and can, you know, the vitamins that are tied up and it can be released and, you know, and so that they're available. Um, so the problem with not having stomach acid there, and sometimes there'll be very, very little stomach acid there because the amounts that babies are getting, it's based, it's kind of based on the dosages that are used for adults. Um, so babies are proportionally getting much larger volumes of these PPIs than, than adults would be. So it's making a really massive difference to how much acid that they're producing. So if they're not producing enough there, that affects digestion. It means they're not as able to digest those proteins. It means that they are not able to, there, there's some vitamins and minerals that they that are, are not really bioavailable to them for those reasons. So they can, so B12, for example, or calcium, for example. Um, and then there's knock-on effects to that. So the calcium possibly, has a big impact. There was a very, very large study done. Of, it was like 800,000 babies, nearly a million babies, absolutely massive. Wow. Um, 
babies and children, I suppose. Um, but it found that um, being on a PPI increased a baby's fracture risk. Oh my goodness. So possibly that is to do with the calcium. And it was for several years afterwards. So it wasn't just during the time that they were on it. Um, that the, the, the effect of digesting proteins as well, that can impact on allergy because it's usually the protein part of foods which, you know, which are we've become allergic to. That's why people talk about cow's milk protein allergy. <laughs> it's, the aller it's the protein part of it that's often the, the problematic part for us. We need to be able to break down those proteins fully. It's if we can't really break them down, that's whenever they're more allergic to us or more allergenic to us. Um, so there are studies that show that being on acid suppressants increases your risk of allergy. Um, it's also it's also pretty well known in, in adults that it increases your risk of infections, both your gastrointestinal infections, but also respiratory infections. Um, and we're now getting studies in children that are showing that as well, that it increases the risk of, of infections. So I, I think, you know, for me, drugs are there for a reason. It's not that I'm saying nobody should use these things. Mm -hmm. um, they're there for a reason. They're really powerful at what they do. And because of that, I think we need to be really clear about when they're used and that they're used for the right reason and that we can make informed decisions about, about when to use them. I mean, that's, that's exactly it. It's the informed decision part of it. When somebody, when we're told, maybe you should try Gaviscon for your baby, whether it be from your best friend or a doctor, why are we not discussing what the benefits and the risks to that yes. are? Yes. And it's, it's such a big thing that across all sort of parenting and stuff like that there that we could be looking at what often is called the brain of your benefits, your yes. risks. What are the alternatives? What's your intuition telling you? And what happens if we don't do it? And what if we say no? And these are the yeah. sorts of things that maybe parents could be accessing more information about through books like yourself by having access to that information. Yeah. If if there was one thing that you could say to you as a mother who was going experiencing this for the first time again, mm -hmm. what would you say to yourself? I would say to myself that it's okay that he wants to be in your arms all the time. That there's that that does not indicate a problem in itself. That indicates good attachment and a normal, healthy, developing brain. Um, I think. For me, and this is what I see and for lots and lots of the parents that I work with, probably the vast majority of the parents is that we go into parenting or, parenting or first babies with quite unrealistic expectations of what those babies are going to be like. You know, I was, I was, you know, I was very naive, but I think lots and lots of us are. I don't think I was particularly unusual, but I was very naive about what it was going to be like. You know, I really did think that yeah, you had this baby and you fed them and then they would go down, they would lie down in a pram or a Moses basket or, you know, you'd put them down and three hours later, they'd kind of squeak and let you know that they wanted to feed again. And, you know, you'd pick them up, you'd maybe change their nappy and feed them and then they would lie down again. And it was just, it was a complete shock to me that he wanted to be in my arms all the time, day and night. And that he did not want to go down in the cot at night either. Um, and I think just whenever you have an idea that they should be able to do that and they're not, 
then that makes you think, well, what's wrong? Either what's wrong with my baby or what am I doing wrong? Mm -hmm. And both of those are, they're actually really distressing thoughts. You know, if you think something is, is that, that something's wrong with your baby or your baby's really unhappy and you can't seem to stop it, that's really distressing. And the fact, and, and that other thought as well, that I'm, I'm not up to this or I'm not doing this right, also a really distressing thought. And so we'll do, we'll try all sorts of things. And so we search the internet, we start to, you know, we buy gadgets and we do all sorts of things to try and make this work the way that we think it should. It's that Dr. Google, he, he has so much to answer for and across so much of, there's one of those, a lot of people talk about mommy guilt but there's also the mommy grief of when when something happens what would you say to somebody who might be experiencing that sort of feeling beyond that of, of what where should they be going to for support or what could their next steps be if they're starting to feel that things aren't going the way that they had probably expected it to happen in relation to reflux or any other aspect that you might be involved with yeah well, I think, I mean, I, I do think the first thing is to, to speak to somebody knowledgeable who understands what is normal baby behavior, because quite often people are, you know, they're feeling this grief and thinking that something is really very wrong when it's not, you know, whenever they're just getting messages from society, which are not realistic, you know, they're just being told things and they're being told things very often by family and friends who are trying to be super helpful but the things that they're saying are not terribly helpful. And I think, you know, everybody knows that birth is really difficult and then you kind of forget about it. You forget what it's like until you're given birth again. And then you're like, oh, yeah, I remember this. I remember what this is like. Um, but I think the same thing is true of the early months. I think the, the same thing is true of the fourth trimester months. I think that those months are really, really intense and that babies need you, you know, they just need your body. They need it all the time. And it's a really intense time. It's exhausting. You're not getting enough sleep um, and you're trying to learn all these new skills on top. And I think that whenever your own parents or you know, people who are a few years out from that, whenever they're saying to you, well, my baby didn't do that or you should be able to put them down by now they're not remembering their three-week-old baby. Mm -hmm. They're remembering their four-month-old baby. And it's, it, I think that's the way it feels for so many people. It's that blur. Yeah. And, e and even when you're in the midst of it, it can feel like a blur of, yeah. I remember what it was like last week, never mind down the line. Um, but it's, there's just so much that could be done to keep continue supporting people. Like you say, talking to people, talking to people that are in a similar situation to you because yes. being able to share that this feeling that you're not alone I think that's something that any any time that I've been involved with a group when somebody says I thought I was the only one yes everybody in the room reacts to that absolutely because then you realize it's not you you're not doing something wrong and neither is your baby you're just being a mom they're just being a baby and that's just the way that it is and it's really hard um, and and it's it's such a relief to realize that it's it's, it's like letting go for so many people yeah. have just been able to give themselves a breath to move into being the parent that they want to be and it comes down so much to in, or trusting your own intuition mm -hmm. with, with these sorts of things um but also reaching out like you said reaching out and speaking to people I did want to jump back a little bit um, and you'd mentioned about gourd 
Yes. And I know a lot of people might question that. We, we hear reflux, we hear colic, we hear unsettled baby. Yes. We, see, we hear all these things. But GORD is the actual diagnosis that a child might get if they are yes. going through diagnoses. They, yes. Although that term isn't actually, I mean, the term that everybody hears is reflux. They've, they've kind of become synonymous with each other, but they're not. Reflux, reflux, the, like the definition of that is really the passage of anything, any of the stomach contents out of the stomach up the esophagus. That includes air. So if, if a baby is burping, if we are burping, that's reflux. <laughs> we actually all reflux all the time, but reflux is, and that's why it's described as a completely normal event. You know, it is normal for people to reflux. It shouldn't be problematic. You should be able to do it and it not hurt. Babies should be able to spit up and it not hurt them. And that's why you do see lots and lots of babies who they smile through it or they just, it doesn't seem to bother them. They pause it a wee bit or some might spit up and they're a wee bit grizzly. They're a wee bit annoyed about it, but you pick them up and they soothe very quickly. Or they might, might kind of go, like it didn't taste very nice but they're not annoyed by it, you know, they're okay. That's reflux, that's, that's normal. Um, gourd is where there are some, there's some kind of pathology, there's some kind of problem associated with that, there's some kind of complication associated with it. Um, so pain would be what would be typically associated with pain and inflammation. That's what we think about in adults. You think about heartburn, that feeling of heartburn. Uh, and that there's inflammation in the esophagus. Um, and so that's what is assumed to be going on for babies whenever they're, they're crying as well. But the problem is, of course, you can't ask babies. Whenever they're crying, you can't say, are you having some pain here right now? Is, is that what's going on with you? And like you say, it's very difficult to know when babies are crying, what they're crying about, you know, particularly in the early months, that their cries are not, they're not really any different. You know, in the first few weeks, they're going to, the, the cry that means I've got a dirty nappy is the same cry as um, I'm a bit scared right now and I want you to pick me up. It's the same, and it's the same, it's the same cry for something's hurting me. So there's no way to know. And actually, you know, we've, we've not really historically been very good at, at identifying pain in babies anyway, you know. There's all sorts of painful procedures that have been done, medical procedures that have been done to babies in, you know, in the years gone past without anybody really realizing that it was causing them pain. So sometimes we do things we don't realize it's causing them pain. And sometimes we're assuming that whenever they're crying, it is pain, mm -hmm. but really the babies are communicating something completely different. They're communicating that something's going on here with the feet that I'm not comfortable with, or I need you to pick me up, or I'm needing to go to sleep and I need you to move slightly differently or, you know, it could it can be all sorts of things. It's unbelievable that people, that, that, not that not it's unbelievable, it, it's just so difficult to try and get that across to anybody in your own circle sometimes that sometimes babies just cry and it could be literally that my toe is tucked into my baby growth. Yes. And it just happens that that's at the same time that you've just give, had a feed and things are just feel wrong for them at that moment in time. Absolutely. And, and them trying to learn how to communicate. It's incredible because they're doing it from nothing. Like how amazing are babies' brains to be able to do any sort of communication at that yeah. stage? Yeah. So it's unbelievable for me just how amazing our bodies are. We do have a couple of questions that have come in. Okay. So Holly Carroll has asked, how do we request a diagnosis? 
Well, how do you request a diagnosis? You know, if you wanted to get an actual diagnosis, I suppose that it would be your GP would have to think that there was a serious issue going on there that required a referral. Mm -hmm. For the vast, vast majority of babies, that's not what's happening. You know, it, everything that's happening is at a level that can be dealt with within primary care. Yeah. And, and, you know, there's not, there isn't a serious issue going on there. Babies who have gourd, like who actually have gourd, are very, very unwell babies. You know, if you've got a lot of inflammation going on there, that, that you know, they're not able to feed well, they're, they're very unwell. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that's not what's actually happening with vast numbers of the babies who are actually being medicated. What the NICE guidance says is if you suspect that there is reflux, the first thing that should happen for a breastfeeding baby is a, is a feeding assessment, is a breastfeeding assessment. Now, it doesn't actually say that for the formula feeding babies or the bottle feeding babies. It has ideas about how they should adjust. They should you know, feed more frequently and have smaller amounts. And that's, I think that's, those are, that's good advice. But I think that they deserve a good feeding assessment as well. I think any babies who are where, where there is suspected or you're querying reflux, that's the first thing that should happen. There should be a good feeding assessment because in, you know, in lots and lots, in the vast majority of these cases, this, the symptoms that are being described are feeding problems. You know, I'm just, if I'm gonna, I'm gonna just read out a wee tiny wee bit. That would be here, amazing, yeah, please. If that's okay. And this is, this is the reflux symptoms. So I did a Google to look at the, the kind of symptoms that are normally um, associated with reflux. And so the symptoms that are there are spitting up milk, feeding difficulties like gagging, choking, refusing feeds, frequent hiccups, frequent coughing, excessive crying, crying during feeding, crying after feeding, arching during feeds, waking up at night, comfort feeding or frequent feeding, per weight gain, green or yellow vomit, vomit with blood, recurrent pneumonia, projectile vomiting, colicky or windy, high weight gain, trouble with self-settling, hoarse voice, teeth that show signs of acid erosion, a wheeze, not comfortable lying on their back or wants to be held constantly. Now that's a vast array of things there but you can kind of divide them into three groups which is what I've done there's a large group there which are feeding behaviors so spitting up milk frequent hiccups crying during feeding crying after feeding arching during feeding comfort feeding or frequent feeding per weight gain and high weight gain those are feeding issues so those kind of things should be investigated as part of a, of a feeding assessment if a baby is arching during feeding there's a difficulty going on there with the feeding so that, that needs to be looked at. And then there's the unsettled behaviors. So things like excessive crying, waking at night, colicky or windy, trouble with self-settling, not comfortable lying on their back and wants to be held constantly. To my view, lots of those things should be looked at as part of a feeding assessment as well, because the excessive crying might be to do with feeding issues. Um, waking often at night, that might be normal. It might be that what you've been told is, is normal sleep is not what is physiologically normal sleep. Or it might be that there are some feeding issues that are going on. So a lot of those things would be picked up and should be picked up as part, part of a good feeding assessment. The third group, the medical issues, that's things like frequent coughing, green or yellow vomit, blood in the vomit, recurrent pneumonia, persistent projectile vomiting, hoarse voice, the teeth that show signs of acid erosion and wheeze, 
those are clearly medical issues. Those need to, you know, a doctor needs to be looking at those really carefully to see what's going on. But those are not the things that are happening in the vast majority of babies that go to the doctor and get some gabascon. Thanks so, so much for sharing that. I mean, those are things that if parents can be able to look at that and see that that's, it's almost like the triage of yeah. where they could be going to, to find out information of at what level they are. I think that's a really, really important tool for parents to have access to. Thank you so, so much for sharing that with us. Um, I do have one more question again from Holly who said, why do medics say reflux tends to resolve around six months old? Have you found that to be true? Well, if you kind of think about what's going on with babies, so they're on a completely liquid diet. And, you know, that little bit, we sphincter, we ring off muscle that sits at the top of the stomach. And that's, you know, whenever stuff goes into the stomach, then it's supposed to close and keep it in there. But it's not terribly mature in young babies. It's just a little bit leaky. Uh, and babies also don't have an awful lot of core strength. You know, so they spend a lot of their time either horizontal or semi-horizontal so it's a bit like you know filling up a bottle with water and just having the cap on a bit loosely if you leave it down stuff's going to leak out so that that's why it very commonly happens with young babies but as they get to six months old they sh hopefully should have been doing lots and lots of tummy time before then so they will have developed much better core muscles and they're starting to sit up so gravity has a bit of an effect there whenever they're sitting up they're also going on to solids at that time. So their diet is beginning to change. It's no longer this completely liquid diet anymore. There's some solids in there as well. So all of those things together mean that the reflux is less, it's just, it's less likely to happen or it's less frequent, I suppose. It just makes sense. I mean, when you're thinking about all these things coming together, it, it makes so, so much sense. Thank you so, so much, Carol. It's been absolutely amazing speaking with you. It's been so so informational and I'm sure everybody that's watched has had got, got so much from it um fingers crossed people will be watching um on review again and if you have any questions I'll be sure to pass them on to Carol as well and hopefully we can find some sort of connection for you there to talk as well um everybody if you can join us on the baby grow page um give us a like and find out all the more information also check out the baby grow book club group um, if you do want to go ahead and purchase Carol's book, um, Pinter and Martin, the publishers, have wonderfully given us a discount um, for purchasing the book. If you use Baby Grow 10, you'll get 10% off your purchase. We will be running um, the competition through until tomorrow, so you have a chance to win a copy yourself by going to the post on our, or on our Facebook page. Leave a comment, let somebody know about the event, let them re-watch it to find out more information. Um, we will be having our monthly get together through the Baby Grow page and on Zoom. So I'm really looking forward to getting to know you all. Um, and thank you all so, so much for joining us tonight. And again, thank you again, Carol. You've been absolutely amazing. So, yeah, I just wanted to do a little bit because we've talked a wee bit there about the actual symptoms and stuff. There's lots more in the book, I should say, as well. There are some people who will find that reflux is painful for their babies. And there's, there's allergy and there's things that should be investigated as well. So all of that is in the book too. But for a really large number of people, what's going on is that their baby is exhibiting normal baby behaviours, but our society doesn't really recognise them anymore. It doesn't really understand normal baby behaviour anymore. Um, 
So the, the final chapter in the book is, is called Beyond Reflux, Co-Regulating Your Baby. So I thought it would be nice just to read a couple of wee pages out of this. What if I told you that the reason there is such a difference in what you expected of your baby, three hourly feeds, the ability to sleep alone, the ability to lay down, and the reality, which is frequent queuing for feeds, wanting to be held and to sleep on you, is because you've been fed inaccurate expectations throughout your life. What if I told you that Western society's understanding of babies and what babies need is flawed? What if I told you that your baby needs your body intensely just so their body works properly? Our babies need a lot of care. In order to understand how much, I need you to suspend all your current beliefs about babies and about parents. Put everything that society has told you on hold and think about our babies as you would look at another species. The first thing to understand is that our babies are born with very immature brains. And that immaturity means that our babies are not capable of doing very much to keep themselves safe and alive. Other mammals that we're used to seeing on farms, cows, horses, sheep, goats, pigs, have babies who are able to get to their feet very quickly and follow their mother around. They can flee from predators. They can find their way to their mother if they're separated and can initiate feeding. In stark contrast, a primate baby, such as a chimp or a gorilla baby, is able to cling to their mother and spends most of their time on the mother's body. They stay attached to their mother's front for three to six months and then move to their mother's back. At around the age of two, they'll start to climb down from their mother, venturing up to 16 feet away before returning to their mother's back. They only start sleeping on their own at around four to five years of age. That's a long time for an infant chimp to need to be attached to their mother. And a baby chimp is actually more mature than a baby human. At birth, an ape's brain is about 50% the size of an adult ape brain. A human baby at birth, however, has a brain which is only 25% of the adult brain mass. Our babies cannot venture away from us in return. They can't get away from danger. They can't make their way to us if they need to feed or have some other need met. They can't even cling to us. This means they're entirely dependent on us to care for them. Their biological expectation is that we will behave much like the chimp mother. This means babies need an awful lot of time, attention and work, perhaps much more than you have led, been led to expect. Why would evolution or nature design our babies to be so helpless and to need so much energy and labour from the parent? The answer lies in our pelvis. If we were to let our baby's brain go to 50% of their adult size, they'd have a much larger head at birth. Since that we birthed that head through our pelvis, that would mean we need, need to have a much larger pelvis. A larger pelvis is heavy, too heavy for walking upright. An ape can pass a much larger head through its heavy pelvis because they walk on four limbs. But an animal that walks on two legs has to have a much smaller and lighter pelvis and therefore can only give birth to a baby with a smaller brain. At some stage in the past, we as a species made an unconscious evolutionary decision about walking upright. As an evolutionary trade-off for the advantage of being bipedal, our baby's gestation changed. Rather than having a gestation completely inside the womb, like a calf, for example, we created a situation where we split a baby's gestation into two parts, part of it inside the womb and part of it outside the womb, but in our arms. A baby is much like a kangaroo joey. The joey is born, makes its way to the pouch, climbs inside, drinks milk, and completes its gestation. Our human babies are born, are placed in our arms, feed at the breast, and complete gestation there. Our arms are our pouch. 
those small immature brains aren't very good at keeping the body system stable. As mature adults, we can keep our heart rates regular. We can bring our breathing under voluntary control. We can manage our temperature. We can look out for threats. We can recognize our emotions, usually. And we've learned to manage our stress and our emotional responses to some degree. Our babies cannot do any of these things well. They aren't even very good at the basic things like stable, regular breathing, heart rate, or temperature, unless they're on an adult body. You may even have noticed that if lying alone, sometimes your baby might seem to stop breathing for a brief moment. Babies cannot regulate these systems themselves, but they can borrow our adult regulation when held against an adult body. That adult keeps the baby's body systems regulated. The adult heart rate regulates the baby's heart rate. The stable adult breathing regulates the baby's breathing. And the adult temperature regulates the baby's temperature. Babies literally need our bodies. They need their body to be against ours. This is co-regulation, a state where the adult is required to regulate the infant's body. So society may tell us we, we should be able to put our babies down and that they should be able to sleep alone. But neuroscience tells us that when babies are separated from us, even by a couple of feet, their bodies become dysregulated. They become stressed. They move into a fight or flight state. And once they do that, they release stress hormones. So when, baby, and when babies are stressed, they're going to cry, they're going to spit up, they're going to need you more. So that's, I think, what's going on for lots and lots of people. And I wish we could get more message out there about how normal it is for babies to need to be held. That's incredible, Carolyn. That's, it was just beautiful listening to you read it as it was, or as it was written, absolutely incredible. And the, our arms are our pouch. That's going to stay with me for a very long time and I'm sure that I will repeat it to many parents going ahead um, again thank you so so much for sharing that with us and thank you for spending the evening with us and for being our very first featured um, author we are so honored to have you on um, and we're really looking forward to hopefully working alongside you in the future and doing more stuff together lovely lovely look forward to it have a really lovely evening and thank you everybody for joining us it's been amazing and thank you for interacting we've had some amazing comments underneath the video of how things have just started to, to click with parents having listened to this so you've made such a difference carol so thank you so so much thanks Catherine. and good evening everybody we'll see you soon